Welcome to the Bible Q&A Podcast, the show that answers your questions about the Bible, Christian theology, and church history. This podcast is brought to you by Risen Ministries and Creation Today. Now here are your hosts, Tim Chafee and Eric Hoven. We have reached episode number seven, Tim, and the number seven in the Bible has significance. What is that significance? A lot of people say that it has to do with perfection. You yes. Think of God. Resting on the seventh day, he makes everything in six days and then rests on the seventh day. And you see that number seven appear many other times. You see it uh, throughout Revelation. Um, not always with perfection, I guess, but completeness. Would completeness. Be, That's what I had always yeah. heard is the whole idea of, hey, it's complete. It's done. It's finished. And does that mean we, we, we have to be done here? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think only if we've reached perfection, which um, we have listeners not. know, we, we probably aren't there yet. I know we on this side go. of the microphone over here, we have definitely not. Long way to go. That's why I love doing this podcast with you, because you're answering people's questions, and I am loving this. I'm telling you, I feel like I'm getting a, a college... MDiv education right here on the other side of the microphone. It's pretty fun. Well, that's pretty nice of you to say, I guess. Um, I don't know if that's because of the things I'm saying or just because of the, what you're looking up on your own. <laughs> no, it really is. I'm, I'm loving. There's there's so many things. Well, we'll get into it in the questions we have today. Hey, real quick, though, uh, if you haven't been listening, thank you for joining the Bible Q&A podcast. I'm Eric Hovind, uh, along with Tim Chafee, who is our resident and scholar, if I can call you that, of the podcast anyway. Uh, I I love this. If if you enjoy this, by the way, I love going through this material, answering questions, digging into the Word of God. If you like this, we'd love you to give us a review uh, or tell us that you like it or share it on social media. If you have a question, you can send that in yourself to question, excuse me, to BQA, Bible Q&A, BQA at creationtoday.org. All right, Tim, I know we wanted to follow up on the previous podcast uh, that we did on Matt Walsh and his comments. I'm going to let you take that. And uh, that was, uh, I loved that episode going through a lot of things and, and kind of showing, look, most of the things that he says he doesn't believe about young earth creation, we don't believe about young earth creation. It was a lot of misrepresentations. And so I, I thought that was good. But you had another thing you wanted to add to that. Yeah, there really were a lot of misrepresentations. That, and that's unfortunate as we talked about it. Uh, I don't want to rehash everything that we've said already. So if you, uh, if you're wondering what it is that we're talking about with Matt Walsh, uh, go back and listen to the previous episode, number six, and that'll fill you in. But um, uh, Mr. Walsh made several statements about young earth creationists, uh, the reason why he's not a young earth creationist, and, and gave uh, many, many reasons. Unfortunately, uh, most of the reasons, just about every single thing he said about young earth creationists wasn't even accurate. And so we critiqued a lot of those, but we we didn't have time to address one issue that I really wanted to. We we talked around it a little bit. Um, we talked about the meaning of the word day and what Matt Walsh said in his uh, his video, um, he said that for the young earthers, everything is based on the meaning of the word day. Everything goes back to the meaning of the word day. And that just simply isn't true. It's not even remotely true. Um, yes, it's an important word in the discussion. It does come up. It needs to come up. Uh, let's face it. If the word day in Genesis 1 literally means a, a 24-hour day, if that's the right way to understand that word in that passage, then uh, yeah, the earth, according to the Bible, is young. There's no way around that. Uh, God makes everything in six normal length days. Um, If it can mean something different than that, and that's an important discussion to have, then maybe you can get longer periods of time. So it's a a key issue, but it's not the only issue. 
um, the really the most important issue for young earthers is that if you put death and suffering and disease and bloodshed and thorns prior to man's sin, which is what every one of these old earth views do, whether you're a theistic evolutionist, whether you're gap theory, whether you're a day age theory or progressive creation or, or framework hypothesis, uh, you name it, um, it, you will be putting death and suffering, disease and bloodshed before sin, before Adam and Eve sin. And the Bible says those things are a result of sin. So that's a bigger issue uh, because I, ultimately... I was going to say, Tim, I, I've always wondered that same thing. If God's going to come and make a new heaven, a new earth, like it was before, how is it going to look any different than it does right now if this has always been here? Yeah, what are we looking forward to? A restoration of all things. If um, originally it was full of death, suffering, and disease, that doesn't sound all that wonderful to look forward to. So that that's a problem. Uh, another thing is that uh, Jesus said the creation of Adam, of man and woman, was male and female, he says, was at the beginning. He says that in Mark 10 in Matthew chapter 19. If they weren't, if, if they came along billions of years later, which is what Matt Walsh is arguing for, then they weren't at the beginning, and then Jesus is mistaken or he's misleading people. Either way, that's a problem. Paul says the same, pretty much the same thing. He says, since the creation of the world, man has been able to see certain things about God's uh, character or certain uh, attributes about God, certain truths about God, just by looking at creation. So if man wasn't there at the beginning, if he didn't come along till pretty much the end of the timeline, if billions of years are true, then Paul is inaccurate. So that's another big problem. And neither one of those has to do with the word day. Um, it, it, Genesis 6 through 9 speaks of a worldwide flood. But if the billions of years are true, you don't have a worldwide flood. You have just a local flood, maybe a regional flood. You have to reinterpret all of those chapters. Um, so now you have to reinterpret or disbelieve Genesis 6 through 9 when it talks about a worldwide flood. Um, so that doesn't have to do with, with the word day. We'd have to assume that every one of the Old Testament, New Testament writers who referred back to Genesis and treated it as actual history, we'd have to assume that they were wrong too. So to, to say that everything for young earthers hinges on the meaning of the word day just is, is not accurate uh, at all. And uh, we could go on and on giving more and more examples of that. But I just wanted to, to make sure we addressed that one point because that was really the first thing he hit on in his video. And we, we covered more of his tweets rather than the video. And I, I wanted to make sure we covered that. I think that's great. Hey, if I can make just a personal uh, or a, a plug for something real quick here. I, I did a search on the, the number of times the New Testament writers refer back to Genesis. And it really is fascinating. Uh, we developed a search engine that searches the top 43 apologetic websites in the world. And it's certainly fascinating. I, I love searchcreation.org. And you go on there and you, re, you do a search for how many times do New Testament writers refer back to Genesis? And you will find an entire list of times that they refer back to Genesis as real history. So I think that's a, a, a really neat study and it really solidifies, yes, they took it as literal history. This wasn't figurative in their mind. Well, hey, yeah, I got a question. It, it, Have you ever thought that something was true for a long time only to find out, find out later that what you believe wasn't actually true at all. Specifically, when it comes to things that you've heard about the Bible, things that you've heard about the Word of God. Well, see, I grew up in the church. Uh, I grew up at, uh, hearing, at a Christian school hearing thousands upon thousands of sermons, lots and lots of examples and analogies. I had, I've heard passages preached on numerous times by a lot of different people. And I've heard plenty of things uh, that I think people meant well when they taught it, but later I found out what they taught 
wasn't actually true. Now, my findings did not cause me to reject uh, my, my trust in the Bible. I didn't reject my faith in God. Uh, all, all it did is it helped me really appreciate the fact that now I do know what the truth is. Well, I think in just a few minutes, there's going to be some of you that are going to feel that way after this podcast. And Tim, that's why I love going through these questions, because it really helps expose some of the incorrect teachings that I have had before, and maybe some of the incorrect teachings some people out there have had before. So some of the corrections that I've learned have resulted in you know decent changes in my understanding of the Bible. And one of those, you, when you said, hey, I want to answer this question, I said, yeah, I, I love that. And then we got into the question and I'm discovering I'm wrong about what I believe about this. It's something I'd been taught, but I was wrong. So I'm looking forward to getting that uh, into that in the podcast today. Yeah, and we uh, here's a good example of that. We did that uh, a few episodes ago when we talked about whether or not people laughed at Noah uh, when, while he was building the ark. And, yeah. Um, you know, that's something that is certainly plausible. It's feasible. I mean, they, if he was around people, they probably did. But the Bible never says it. And yet the way we teach that passage, we always act as if the Bible comes around and says they mocked Noah. And it just doesn't. So sometimes what we're taught, it's not that it's necessarily false, uh, but sometimes it's just incomplete. Uh, and as you move, as you, as you mature in the faith, you're moving from the milk to solid food, as it were, almost like a you know like a a baby or an infant moves through you know baby food and and milk into more solid food. And sometimes, uh, well-meaning folks will teach things that just aren't completely accurate. They've got uh, good intentions. Maybe they haven't studied the passage in detail, and they're just um, they're just repeating what they've heard, or maybe they're just giving you something at, at surface level and they haven't really dug in and, and so they're they're trying to make sense of it and they're they're doing the best with what they have in front of them and i think that we sometimes we just needed to, to dig deeper to make sure we're interpreting certain passages properly and, and we're all guilty of that of, of not doing that sometimes um so our speak, goal speak has for to yourself, always Tim. speak for yourself <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> uh, but our goal has to always be back to 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 be to go back to god's word and make yeah. sure that our views are consistent with it we don't go back to it and try to twist it and mold it to fit what we want it to say. What we do is we approach it in humility and say, um, you know, what does this passage really say? And we go through that and, and we study it carefully. And if it, if what it says is different than what we believed before, well, guess what? We should change our view. We shouldn't try to yeah. change it to make it say what we want it to say. Um, so I think, unfortunately, that's hard for a lot of people to do because we're prideful and we, we want to be right and uh, we, we don't want to try to see it from a different point of view. So let's let's give an example of that, uh, Eric. The, the next question, uh, maybe we'll do this for some people. So I yeah, know right now if you're okay. listening, if you're, on your, if you're on your walk and you're listening, you're driving your car, um, don't worry, this isn't like a big earth-shattering one. So you're not, <laughs> you're not going to have to pull over. On this one, okay? You, you shouldn't have to, but it might be very different than you thought before. So, All right, so here's the question that came in. When did Jesus cleanse the temple? You know, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put the cleansing of the temple after the triumphal entry near the end of Jesus' ministry. The book of John puts it early in his ministry. This question comes from both skeptics uh, and scholars, people studying the Bible. Some people trying to make the Bible look like it's wrong, like it doesn't know what it's talking about. And people genuinely seeking, going, hang on, I want, how do I reconcile this when it seems like two different ones? So if you want to look them up in the Bible, it's Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 2. Right, so it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we usually refer to as the synoptic gospels, meaning that they're seeing as one, because those three are very similar in their content. And then John... Um, 
John is very different. John deals with a lot of long dialogues of Jesus, a lot of uh, his ministry near Jerusalem rather than the Galilean ministry, like the other three Gospels do a lot of. So, uh, so we refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the Synoptic Gospels, and John, um, John says it uh, seems to put it at a very different time in Jesus' ministry, right at the in John chapter two, whereas the others put it right after the triumphal entry. Mark tells us it was the next day after the triumphal entry that Jesus cleanses the temple. So we've got a couple of different options here. Uh, one is that uh, either John or the other three gospel writers, usually John is the one that is, um, is brought up here, moved the temple cleansing to a different point in Jesus' ministry for thematic purposes. I mean, let's, let's face it, they don't have to be writing chronologically, do they, Eric? No, not necessarily. In my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, so we know that it's clear John's is towards the beginning and these other three are at the end. And so if you've never heard of this before, it does appear like, okay, hang on. There was a cleansing of the temple. You've heard of that. Most of you hear the teaching of that at the end of the ministry. So, yeah, what's what's going on here? Could could he have done it for you? Said the mat, thematic reasons, like to make it like a a big start to his ministry. That option is available for John if he wants to. There's nothing. There's no rule or a law that says um, when you're writing, you must write chronologically. That's John true. could be grouping things thematically if he wants to, and that's the way that a lot of uh, scholars will will uh, address that. Uh, so that's one option. And in fact, the, um, that one is presented by um, Gerald Borchert in his, um, his commentary, the New American Commentary on the Bible, and uh, he does the Gospel of John. He says, um, the other view is that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Okay, so that's the other option, uh, once early in his ministry and once at the end, and we'll get into both those in just a minute. But Borchert said this, but the familiar argument of two cleansings is a historiographic monstrosity that has no basis in the text of the Gospels. There, and he puts this all in italics, there is only one cleansing of the temple in each gospel. Um, so he's pretty serious about this, that no, the two temple cleansing option is um, not good. It's a historiographic monstrosity. Uh, so from a person writing history, it, it, you know, this would be a, a horrible way to do it. <laughs> it's, uh, so he doesn't see that as a very good option. On the other hand, D.A. Carson, uh, you know, he's a popular evangelical scholar from uh, Trinity, uh, says, in short, it is not possible to resolve with certainty whether only one cleansing of the temple took place or two. But the arguments for one are weak and subjective, while the most natural reading of the text favors two. So there you've got two different scholars who are taking both sides of the issue, and that's Christians generally take uh, you know, one of these two options. So let's explore them a little bit. Yeah, I'm uh, curious. Several, let's go through the passage in John. I'm curious uh, yeah, so several years ago, Yeah, several years ago, um, I did an article on this subject, and it was it was for uh, a book that Answers in Genesis produced called, um, and Master Books published, called uh, Demolishing Supposed Bible Contradictions, Volume 2. So, uh, And really, the, the whole point of that, the book, was just to show that, you know, sometimes skeptics will raise a, a contradiction, they'll say, hey, between this passage and this passage, there's a contradiction. And our goal in there was to show uh, plausible reasons or ways to explain the text uh, in a natural way without really forcing things to show, okay, here's how you could read it so that it's not a contradiction. So I gave a couple of options with regard to the, the two temple cleansing. And there were people that wrote back uh, and they, were, they, were, they weren't very kind about some of the things they said and how, you know, what I wrote was garbage basically and that I was compromising and all sorts of other things. And, but the thing is, I didn't tell them everything. 
I just gave a few options. All right, so why don't we read through this passage real quickly, and then we'll I'll make some comments on it. Uh, beginning in John 2, verse 13, and we're going to go through 22. Uh, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers, or poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to them, What sign do you show to us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said to them. So this is early in, according to John's gospel, this is early in Jesus' ministry, and it's, the account is very different than what you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now there are similarities as far as uh, Jesus driving out money changers and and this whole thing about you've made you know this a uh, house of uh, it's supposed to be a house of prayer where you made it a den of thieves, but John includes things that are not mentioned in the, any of the other gospels where Jesus makes a whip and actually starts <laughs> literally driving people out. Uh, I don't know whether he actually hit people with the whip or maybe he used them to drive the animals out that they were they were changing. It doesn't really tell us. Um, it's the only one that includes debate with some of the Jews who were in the temple. And uh, it's the only one that where they talk back to him and, and they have this, this discussion. It's the only one where he prophesies about his death and resurrection. So they respond with, you know, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Well, if we are, if Josephus is reliable as far as when the temple began to be constructed around 19 BC, then this puts this event around 27 or 28 AD which fits perfectly with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but it doesn't fit at all with the end of his ministry. That's interesting. Yeah, so you would have a, a historical problem there if it's supposed to be put at the end of Jesus' ministry. And also John 1 through 5 is this large block of text that's not found in the other Gospels at all. It'd be a little odd for John to just take one of these passages and grab it from the other Gospels and say, okay, I'm, even though what I'm writing here is completely different than what they've done, let me just stick something out of place in a different time period and put it right here. That would be a little bit odd. Um, actually, it would be quite a bit odd. Yeah. Um, but John isn't arranging things, the events solely for thematic purposes. He gives us some time indicators. In this case, in the very next chapter, he states this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized now John also was baptizing, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. That's John 3, 22 and 23. So John the Baptist was baptizing people after Jesus cleansed the temple? That definitely puts it at the beginning of the ministry because uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist wasn't around. <laughs> exactly. So th this would be a strong indication that what we're dealing with here is two different temple cleansings. One at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. John records the one at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the one at the end. I, I don't know why it's hard for people to believe that he would have done it twice. Was he not zealous for the purity of, of the Lord's house at the beginning of his ministry and at the end? Um, it would also explain why uh, some of the religious leaders really disliked him so strongly uh, because it, 
you know, throughout his ministry. It's not just at the very end. Uh, throughout, they didn't like him because here he's blowing up their racket, so to speak. I mean, yeah. they're, they're making a lot of money there, and he's he's calling them out on it. And so he cost them a lot of money that day. And, um, you know, the people were pretty excited that Jesus did that because they knew the people were, or that they were ripping off the people too. So I I don't know why people find it hard to believe that he would have done it twice. There's just like Borchert does where he, he really speaks against it. I I think that is the view that makes the most sense of the text. If we're going to take it in a straightforward manner, but, um, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic. It's certainly, um, plausible that John would move things for thematic purposes, but it just, there doesn't seem to be a good reason to do it here. What, what's his point in, uh, you know, what is, what's the explanation for John moving it for thematic purposes? Yeah, no, that makes, to, that makes a lot of sense. And I, for me growing up, I, this isn't one of those like, aha, life-changing moments of things I've learned, but I've always only thought of there being one temple cleansing. I never thought about the fact that he could have done that at the beginning of his ministry and now at the end of his ministry, then at the end of his ministry, done that again. Yeah. You know, and that's that's one of the things that happens is that, you know, growing up in the church like you and I did and some many other people have, a lot of times we don't really dig in and, and dive deeper into these things. But what happens is that there's a lot of skeptics that start asking these questions because they notice it. I mean, they're looking for reasons to try to find contradictions in the Bible. They notice those things and then they bring them up. And a lot of times, uh, you know, young people growing up in the church are like, oh, I don't know how to answer that. That's a contradiction. Well, that's one of the reasons we're doing the show is to help you understand that there are answers to these questions. And if you've come across some of these things, send them in, and, and we'll address them for you. So, uh, Eric, we, have we covered that one well enough? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, the next right. question is the one that actually was like, a, oh, wow, that's that changes the way I studied the Bible. When we started talking about this, I had a totally different opinion. You started going through some facts on this next question, and I went, wow, all right, that's changing the way I think about one of the things I've always thought about the Bible because I've heard this all my life. I, I heard it. Literally a few days ago, I was watching something and boom, there it was. And that question is this, what is the law of first mention or the principle of first mention? And is it appropriate to use this while interpreting the Bible? Tim, what do you think? I know we got some quotes from some things some people have said on this. Yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and read that because that'll I think that'll define that for uh, for our listeners if they're not familiar with it. All right, this uh, quote is from David, Dr. David Jeremiah. Uh, you're probably familiar with him, Turning Point Ministry. Uh, I actually have been enrolled in Southern California Seminary, his college there. Here's what he said about the law for first. So century. do I have to do I have to be really careful what I say here? Yeah, or are you yeah. Get in trouble? <laughs> I don't know that he listens to the Bible Q and A podcast. I think we're good. Well, okay. If he does, thank you for listening. Yes, we, we appreciate your teaching. You're going to be interested in Tim's answer on this one. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Dr. David Jeremiah says, To those who study the Bible in a serious way, sometimes refer to the law of first mentions. It is not so much a law, really, as a common principle of scriptures. If you select an important biblical word, say worship, you'll find that its first biblical appearance sets the tone for all the richness of meaning that will emerge. Through the Word, we go on to find many new understandings and many variations on the theme. But the first cut is the deepest. The first mention gives us the essential picture. So kind of this idea that the first time you hear a word or see a word in the Bible, that's like, oh, that's it right there. 
And that has the deepest meaning. Uh, actually, Henry Morris, uh, the grandfather of the Christian movement, what Tim and I are involved in now as part of our apologetics, he said, We have frequently in these pages referred to the principle of first mention, pointing out that when an important word or concept occurs for the first time in the Bible, usually in the book of Genesis, the context in which it occurs sets the pattern for its primary usage and development all through the rest of Scripture. If this principle really means anything, and in terms of both the doctrine and verbal inspiration and the numerous clear examples, it assuredly does, then it should certainly apply in a distinctive way to the word love. So here he again is reiterating that the first time the word is used, that has like the deepest, richest meaning, the law or the principle of first mentions. Tim, go ahead yeah, and break well, my heart once again <laughs> with right, well, these ideas. One. The example that Dr. Morris used uh, where he talked about the word love, that's uh, from Genesis 22, and the, the quote is from his commentary, The Genesis Record, uh, which Eric, you and I would both greatly appreciate uh, much of what he says there in, in, in that book, um, and really appreciate what Dr. Morris uh, has done uh, in his lifetime. He's, uh, you know, we, so we greatly respect him, so just because I might disagree with what he says here, um, doesn't mean that I am disrespecting the, the man at all. Uh, in fact, I, I think the this whole notion is, um, well, there are some problems with it. Uh, and I'm glad this question came up because it's one that I've, I've written about recently. Uh, and it was an article for Answers in Genesis you can find it on the website. Uh, we'll put the link up there for you. And uh, you can check it out. It goes into more detail than what I'm going to go through here. And uh, not to sound too blunt, but the whole principle is demonstrably false. Uh, let me give you a very easy example, and this is why I wrote about it, because I had recently heard a speaker say that, well, we know the word day, <laughs> sounds like we're talking about Matt Walsh again. Yeah, we just covered this. <laughs> but this is, on the, this is on the other end of the spectrum. This is a younger person saying, we know the word day um, means 24-hour day, because the very first time it's used in the Bible, it means 24-hour day. So that, that's what the main meaning is, because of the law or the principle of first mention. And I thought, no, it isn't. That doesn't even mean 24-hour day the first time it's used. Genesis 1.5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. The word day is used twice in that, in that verse, Eric. And the first time, what does it mean? It looks like uh, the half of the day, the 12 hours. Yeah, the daylight portion of the day. And so if this principle means something, if this principle is going to hold true, then the rest of the time it should just be a 12-hour day, right? No, it should only, yeah, well, exactly. It should be a 12-hour day the rest of the time. And, and so God really made the world in, what, three and a half days. Uh, yeah, so it's just, or he made it in three days and then rested <laughs> for half, for a, half day. a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the principle itself, you can prove that it, it doesn't hold true, certainly in every circumstance. I'm sure there's times where it does. I, I think Dr. Morris gives a good example, the word love. Um, that is the first time you see it when it's Abraham and Isaac and here's this talking about this self-sacrificial love which you know God has for us that Jesus is willing to die on the cross for us that so there is a there, that is a good picture of it but um, but in other cases it certainly is not true and there's a lot of times where you, there are a lot of examples you can give and here's here's the problem with it the meaning of the word is not determined by how it's first used the meaning of a word or a doctrine, dependent on the context in which it appears. So we have every time we have to look at the context to determine the meaning. And some people say, well, yeah, the principle still gives you like the richest meaning, but then you have to look at the context to see if it, that's how it's being used. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you've got to look at the context, 
to determine the meaning, then what good is the principle? You know, what's the always, point of if it? If it's always being overridden, it sounds like the English right. language. And, you know, here's right, the rule, and, a, and here's all the exceptions to the rule. <laughs> right. If, if there are so many exceptions to the rule, why are you making a rule in the first place? Why not just go look at the other principles that you're using to verify or deny whether or not that is a legitimate use? And it comes and down Dr. to Morris, context. It come, yeah, it comes down to the context. And Dr. Morris has a list of about 80 different first mentions in an appendix uh, in the Genesis record. And, you know, it obviously it makes sense why the first mention of many different keywords are found in Genesis because Genesis is the first book. So uh, that makes sense. And there's certainly times where the first mention has the deepest meaning, but there's a lot of times where it doesn't. How about this one, Eric? Uh, Genesis 1.11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. The Hebrew word for seed there is, is zera. Okay. Is that the richest or the fullest or the deepest meaning of the word seed in the Bible? Uh, just the, the, the seed of a, of, a, of a vegetable or of a plant? Well, I'm trying to think of the different ways the word seed is used, but you can okay. also a, a man's seed. How about Genesis 3.15? Uh, I'll put enmity between your seed, between oh, you and the woman, yeah. and between your seed and her seed. The whole seed story going to Christ. That's yeah. I'd say that's a <laughs> probably little bit, a deeper meaning, don't you think? Sounds deeper than uh, than the grass and the plants. That's for sure. Yeah. So the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Ultimately, it's going to lead up to Jesus Christ. How about Genesis 15 to Abraham? God says this to your descendants, your zera, your seed. I have given this land. Mm. So here's this Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the the what some uh, people would call the Palestinian covenant, where God is giving them this land. Um, that it's for Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, is that not a deeper meaning than what is found in, in Genesis 1, where it's just talking about the seed of, of plants? Um, now, sometimes people will use this across the Testaments as well. So you you have, if the word is translated love in the Old Testament, um, or if the word here translated seed in the Old Testament, then that's going to hold true for the word that's going to be translated that way from the Greek in the New Testament. And... So in this case, you would have First um, Corinthians 15, uh, verses 35 through 45. Paul's talking about uh, the Greek equivalent of the word zera, which is uh, sperma, to talk about our future resurrection. He's talking about the seed that goes into the ground and then comes up into this, this plant. He said, in the same way our body, when we die, it goes into the ground and then it comes up. He's talking about our future resurrection body. Surely has a much deeper and more profound meaning than the word seed in Genesis 1. So it's when not it's talking about doing the seed exactly of the what we we're told in a lot of different instances. Right. So the first use in this case doesn't even come close to establishing the profound meanings of the term throughout Scripture. There's at least three different uses that are far more profound than that first use. Um, how about words that have multiple significant meanings? God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Mm. Now, obviously, that's physical light that he's talking about because he separates the light from the darkness. Um, but Jesus says in John 8-12, I am the... Light, light of the world. Of the world. Is that a more important? Is that a deeper meaning? Is that, um, you know, he's not, he's using this imagery of physical light to, to portray a spiritual truth. Um, Henry Morris does this with, with the word, word, in Genesis 15, 1, where the word of the Lord came to Abram. And of course, that's a very important uh, use of the term. Uh, but the problem is, if this first mention principle is going to hold true, then it has to hold true in the original language, right? Not just in English. Right. 
So the first use of that word is actually not Genesis 15.1, but in Genesis 11.1, the whole world had one speech, one word, basically, one language. It's the same word that's being used there in Hebrew. Uh, so the, the first mention of, the, of word has to do with the original language that was confused at Babel. But that's not the most profound use. Uh, so the word of the Lord came to Abram, or sometimes the word of the Lord may be in the Old Testament referring to, instead of just God speaking to somebody, it might actually refer to what we call a theophany, a, a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. So before he came in the flesh, Jesus appears to somebody in the Old Testament to speak to them. Um, Jesus is called the word of God in Revelation 19.13. Uh, both of those meanings are far richer in meaning than the original uh, word in, in Genesis 11. So there, there are a lot of different ways to, to show how this principle just doesn't really hold true. And if we have to look at the context to determine the meaning anyways, what's the point? Other than just a, um, just a curiosity. Um, you know, there are neat things that happen in the Bible. For example, um, Eric, maybe you've heard this one before. Um, the, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. Of course. The shortest, chap the shortest chapter is 117, Psalm yep. 117. So just two earlier, there are, um, I'm going off the top of my head here, so I hope I get the numbers right. Uh, so right, what's right in the middle is 118. Right. Um, so there are 594 chapters in the Bible before Psalm 118, and there's 594 chapters after Psalm 118. So that's smack dab right in the middle of the Bible, isn't it? Yep. And if you add the 594 plus 594, you actually get 1,188, 118.8. So Psalm 118, 8, what's that verse 8? Well, it's better to put trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Well, that's pretty neat how that breaks down. But other than just being a curiosity, is there any special, super special meaning to that, especially when you consider the verses were added, you know, just about 500 years ago? Well, Tim, that's going to get text? into numerology and all kinds of uh, stuff in the <laughs> Bible that people should write in questions about. Yeah, so I guess the point is don't, while it's a neat thing to try to consider, don't try to use that as proof for defining a word. Don't try to use that as, um, you know, hey, well, this is how it's used the first time, so I know this is the, the deepest meaning, because there's many times where it certainly is not the deepest meaning. And there's you, you still need to look at the context and how the word is being used, because even in Genesis 2, the word day is used to refer to something other than a 12-hour day and so other than a 24-hour day or the 12-hour daylight portion of the day, or the 24-hour day. It's, it's in the day in which the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Is that the whole creation period that's being spoken of, those six days? Is it just the the actual day where he makes the heavens and the earth? Uh, the, so it depends on the context and how it's being used. And you don't just look at the very first usage and say, this is the one. So... Well, you broke my little heart yet again. I've heard that. I've probably said that at one time or another, and I hear a I lot of people teach too. that kind of thing. I probably have too. I think it would have been a long time ago if I did, but I've heard that from several people, and I I probably used I can't remember for sure. I hope I didn't, but yeah. if I did and you're listening, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not a good principle. In fact, I, I looked through many, many um, uh, books on interpretation, on, on hermeneutics, and I couldn't find a single one that said, here's a principle uh, for interpreting. Use the principle of first mention. There might be some out there, but in terms of, uh, I looked in uh, probably close to 10 different books on interpretation. None of them had this. And wow. there's good reasons for it. You, you don't need it because you can 
you can determine the meaning without it. And in fact, you should try to determine the meaning without it. So go based on context, and that concept is more of a, what would you call it? I guess I, I think of folklore. It's one of those folklore type uh, things that are still spread around. A novelty, a curiosity. It's just one of those kind of neat little things. When it works, it's kind of cool, like the word love. But when it doesn't work, then it, it could kind of tend to make us look silly, and we, and we don't really need any more help with doing that. Well, that's interesting. Man, well, I, uh, I will continue looking for the first words and looking at their context and seeing what their context tells me. This is awesome, man. I love it. All right. Hey, well, if you hey, guys are enjoying the show, we sure would love to get a rating or review from you and uh, share on your social media platform. That would certainly mean a lot to us as we are getting started here with our completed episode number seven. Tim, completion has happened. <laughs> yep. Uh, so no more programs, right? Nope. Yep. We'll see you back next week for episode number eight. Oh, by the way, in episode eight, you guys are going to love it. We're answering a question that I'm sure is going to just kind of spike. Uh, actually, it's going to spike emails. And Tim, I'm going to make you answer all the emails because I don't want to <laughs> have to answer all the ones that are coming in from next episode. It's going to be. All right. Are you going to tell them what it is? Or are you no, gonna make no. It? They're okay. going to have to wait next week and find out. All right. I won't say a thing. All right, man. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Tim and I love sharing with you. I love learning from Tim. I hope you guys are enjoying digging into the Word of God. See you next week. You've been listening to the Bible Q&A podcast. If you have a question you would like Tim and Eric to address on the program, please send an email to bqa at creationtoday.org. The views expressed on the Bible Q&A podcast do not necessarily represent those of other ministries with which Tim and Eric are affiliated. Thank you for listening.